Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. We are going to... uh to look at marriage by God's design this morning. And so if you want to go ahead with me and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we'll start reading at verse 23. And I'll just ask you to stand with me as we read from God's Word together, please. And it might help a little bit in keeping us all awake this morning. <laughs> Keep the blood going. Genesis 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. Thank you. So just a little bit of a refresher, as I know people are coming and going on uh, vacations and traveling. Um, we're in the final verses of the Bible where there is no sin present. And so it's a, a very unique place in the scriptures because after um, the fall in chapter 3, everything after that is tainted and distorted by sin. And so at this point we are still... Um, pre-fall in that sense, and so we get these clear, crisp pictures of God's original design, and it, it helps us to understand what he was after and, and what even Christ has come to restore um, in many ways. And it's fascinating to look at the New Testament, and we have looked at this in the past a bit, but when the New Testament writers and when Jesus himself was asked about marriage, when he was asked about divorce, he goes to these very passages in Genesis, and it is from here that their understanding of marriage is shaped, and the understanding of what this covenant involves, and, um, and, and even understanding the breaking of it as Jesus was addressing the issue of divorce in uh, Mark 10, uh, uh, Mark 10, 2 to 12. Or Paul would give instructions to husbands and wives and children in Ephesians 5, and he would go to uh, Genesis 2 to base his teaching. And so it's important that we understand that while this is written to the people of Israel, written by the hand of Moses, um, because it is rooted in God's original design, it still is applicable to us. And this institution of marriage is universally applicable to all cultures, to all people, and while we know that marriages can take different forms in the way that the customs are carried out, there are some basic core um, principles or components of marriage that I want us to see this morning. And I think, uh, you know, I don't need to say, it's pretty obvious, but this issue of marriage is is so badly eroded in our day that it is at an epidemic state. My generation, by and large, are completely walking away from a traditional understanding of marriage. 
and just deciding that it is obsolete, that it is unnecessary, that it is simply uh, a formality of man. But I want you to begin to understand that this is actually rooted in creation itself, and because of that, the New Testament and Christ upholds it. I also don't need to, you know, to point it out, although it's worth reminding ourselves that marriage is very much under attack in our day, as it has been since the garden. The serpent came and declared war on God's good design. And we see this attack on marriage in various forms now that sex outside of marriage is promoted and encouraged to, to everyone. It doesn't matter who or with what. As long as it's something that you want, then you have a right to do that. That is promoted in, in our culture. Um, we see that the redefining of marriage and, and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, is all being redefined, and this comes as an assault against God's design of marriage. Even the issue of abortion, um, one writer, James Boyce, pointed out that is really a subtle attack also on marriage because, by and large, the abortion system absolutely excludes the father and even the parents at times so that a, a woman can go and have an abortion without any um, counsel from her husband or the father of the child, or a teenager can go and have an abortion without having to consult parents. And this all comes as an attack of what God has established as good and right. And so we're not going to get through all of these today, I don't think, because I, I got to about page 17 and decided I should probably do it in two sermons. So we're going to just look at the first few um, components of... Uh, of what marriage is, the framework um, of it, and, and what is a God-honoring marriage. And so you see in, this, in these verses here, in verse 23 uh, and following, that it's in the framework of a covenant. This is extremely important to understand. And we, several weeks back, looked at God's covenant with Adam called the covenant of life, where he was commanded not to eat of a tree, and if he did, there would be the punishment of death, that God always relates to his people in covenants and agreements that have conditions and, and, and blessings for walking in obedience and a curse for breaking. And so it only is fitting that when God establishes uh, the first human institution, the first human relationship, that it would be in a covenant context. And so marriage is very much a covenant. And we see that through the language that is used, this language of leaving and of cleaving, of turning from father and mother and cleaving to a wife. It is in this covenantal framework that we see God has established marriage. Now, again, this, um, our, our lack of understanding oftentimes of, of covenants in our culture, I think, is largely contributing to the, the fact that marriage is being so eroded, that we have no context, oftentimes, of a covenant-keeping God. But we see this affirmed throughout the scriptures, that, that marriage is viewed by God as a covenant, as an agreement, as a binding oath in which God himself is the primary one at work. In Malachi 2, we have this, this wonderful uh, insight into God's heart towards marriage. He's writing to the people of Israel, and um, he writes in, in verse 13, he says, This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. 
So the people are coming to the Lord, they're broken, they're weeping, they're wanting his favor, but he's not giving it. And so they say, why does he not? And God answers, he says, it's because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And there you see God use this covenant language. He says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God establishes this human institution, the first of human institutions, and it is marriage. It is a covenant relationship. And I remember one of my first jobs um, off the farm was working um, as a, with a home builder, and um, so we were framing houses, and my coworkers were non-Christians, and I remember one time it struck me that we were working, and his girlfriend had brought him, uh, brought us all some refreshing drinks, some, I think it was Slurpees or something like that, and, um, and he said, oh, hey, it's my wife, and she responded back and said, no, I am not your wife because we're not married, right, but in his mind, he wanted to classify her as a wife, but the problem was she knew there had never been a covenant. There had never been this pledging, this vowing of ourselves together in a public way. And so this is very common in our day. We have reduced marriage down to simply, well, I love this person, I, can, I have slept with them, and so now we're basically married. And when we lose this covenantal framework um, that God has established, we, we begin to realize that it's, it's not marriage as God has made it, if it is not within this covenant framework. One commentator, he says, uh, just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes a king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So just because somebody wants to be a king and wants to rule doesn't make them a king. It's that they have been crowned king, right? And, and this person is saying that in the same way, just because someone says they're in love and says they, they have been physically intimate, that they're now married, no, that in the same way there is this crowning, there is this covenanting together before God. And we see right away who's involved in this covenant as God established it. It is one man and one woman. This is the covenant structure of marriage. One man and one woman. And we don't have time to, to get into the whole issue of polygamy that comes up very quickly in Genesis, but again, that is after sin has come in and begins to distort what God has made. But we see even the issues of homosexuality are not in this design and therefore are not even legitimate forms of marriage. And I know that can get us in a lot of trouble today, but if we are going to be biblical, if we are going to honor what God has established, this is how he has made it. And it does not matter how many denominations say they are going to bless redefining of marriage. It doesn't matter because God has already established it. And yes, it breaks our hearts. I reading a few days ago the... the the Anglican Church are now condoning their blessing on same-sex marriage, and, and they're for it. Well, it doesn't change anything as far as what God is concerned. And so we see that it's not only between the man and the woman, but it is God himself 
who is the one at work in this marriage. It is God who joins them together in this union. There's a, a wonderful little book, and I know I, I uh, reference John Piper a lot, but he's a man who's been a great blessing in my life. He wrote a book called um, This Momentary Marriage, and I just wanted to read you a, a, an insert from there on this, this issue of God as the main one at work in the marriage union. He says, um, when a couple speaks their vows, it is not a man or a woman or a pastor or a parent who is the main actor, the main doer. God is. God joins a husband and a wife into one flesh union. God does that. The world does not know this, which is one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually, and Christians often act like they don't know it, which is one of the reasons marriage in the church is not seen as the wonder it is. Marriage is God's doing because it is a one flesh union that God himself performs. The ultimate thing to see in the Bible about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. Most ultimately, marriage is the display of God. It is designed by God to display his glory in a way that no other event or institution does. God establishes this beautiful picture of marriage to be an, an ongoing portrait of his own covenantal working of how his son would redeem a bride. And so as we begin to understand that it is God who not only establishes marriage, but is the one who brings the husband together in that one flesh union as they give their vows, as they publicly declare their love and commitment to one another. It is God himself at work in making them one. And so that's the first, that's the first um, foundational thing you need to understand about marriage. It is a covenant relationship. It is a covenant relationship. The second foundational component that we see in marriage, that what it involves, what, what happens when someone is married, we see from Genesis 2 here, is that it involves leaving, Right? Verse 24, the man shall leave his father and his mother. And, and this is a key component of what it means to be married, what it means to be joined together. We see that God created Eve from Adam, and it is God himself who brings her to the man, presents to the man his wife, and Adam declares and rejoices of, of what God has done, and at last he has found a, a, a partner that is like him, and... Um, and then there, we're told by God in verse 24, and this isn't Adam speaking. We have this quotation from Adam, and you, it's, in, it's in quotations in your Bible. And then verse 24 is back to, to God himself who inspired Moses to write, speaking. This is the basis, the foundation of why man will leave his father and mother. And so what does it mean that a man leaves, right? Is this simply that, that Junior is going to pack his bags, and he's going to start doing his own laundry. He's going to start buying his own groceries. He's going to leave mom and dad's uh, physical location. And, and while that is sometimes part of it, remember in many cultures, and especially uh, Jewish cultures, the, when a man was betrothed to a woman and, and ma was married, oftentimes what they did was simply add another room um, onto the house. 
And I'm sorry, dads, if I'm putting ideas into your children's heads, right? Like, he's not building on my house. He's going out the door when he gets married. But often, that's what the Jewish culture did. They'd add on to the house, and the man would then bring his wife in, and the the husband would continue to work in the trade of the family and be a part of the the family structure. But but we must not think of leaving as simply a a new physical location. Um, uh, Even talking to my sister Lori in India, because everything is so dense, um, oftentimes multiple families would live in one dwelling and, and just because of the lack of space. And so it's not as much um, that there's a physical leaving, although that often does happen in our culture um, to some degree, but it rather has more to do with that of authority, that of commitment, that of priorities than simply a physical location. And there are, there are different you could think of it as, I um, wish I could draw it on the screen, but they might not wash off, um, different spheres that God has established of authority. There is an individual sphere of authority. As an individual, you have uh, a responsibility to respond to the gospel. You have the right to certain decisions in your life, right? There is that individual dynamic, even for those who are single, um, do not have to s- submit to a, a spouse in the same way a married couple would. So there's the, the sphere of the individual, there is the sphere of the family unit, which God is establishing here. Marriage is a sphere of authority, and um, this is established by God. There is also the sphere of the church, which is another um, sphere of authority, of sovereignty in that rule. And then there is the government and the political structures that God establishes. And when these different spheres begin to step in, Um, outside of God's design into the others, when the government begins to tell the family what to do and, 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 and how to raise their children or what they're allowed to tell their children, that's a problem. It's a breach of God's institution. Same if the, the government tries to break into the church to, too much and begin to dictate what is taught. What is, this is a breach of God's design. And the same for the family. And so when a child grows up, they're under the authority of their parents. It's very important that your children understand you have been placed by God over them in a place of authority. That is why you must honor your father and mother. But as the child grows, there becomes this transition point when the child is under the parent's authority, but they're also beginning to establish their own authority. And, and, and I, I don't know this, but I, I'm talking to my parents. I know it can be a very difficult transition because at what point does the child start, you know, paying their own insurance and, and making their own decisions for how, how, how late they're going to stay up, um, what movies they're going to watch. Some of these things begin to slowly transition. But in marriage, there is this clear, decisive break. When a man is joined to his wife, there is a leaving of his father and mother's authority. The father does no longer tell the son when to go to bed, when to get up, um, you know, when to pay his bills. These become the responsibility of the husband and wife. There is a, a leaving, a separation that is very important that is to happen in marriage. And, um, and it is the same also, you know, even for, for daughters, that there is this, this leaving, that no longer are you supposed to go to mom or to dad when you're struggling or you've been hurt. You now confide in your spouse and you talk with them and you talk with the Lord obviously, first and foremost. So there's that leaving emotionally, there's a leaving practically, even spiritually. The husband and the wife become accountable for their own home before God, 
And, and, and again, even on an individual basis, this also happens. Um, sometimes not as clearly, right? You get, um, I won't pick on my brother, but um, <laughs> you get the, the guy who goes off to school and then brings his laundry back home for mom, right? So sometimes that break when you're not married is a little bit less clear, but still it happens. And so I, I want to say just for a moment, especially to you young men here, or, or if you're not married, if you are relating to a young woman outside of the blessing of her father, you are walking in direct contradiction to God's established authority. Before you try to win the heart of a young woman, you should try to win the heart of her father. Right? And that's scary. And I, I have a gracious father-in-law, and I remember talking with him about my intentions towards his daughter, and I still, you know, still get a bit shaky thinking about it. But that's crucial because this is how God has established it. And young ladies, if a man is pursuing you, but he is intentionally avoiding your father, do not give him a second look. Now, I understand sometimes fathers can be unreasonable, right? Like if the guy can't overhaul a transmission, he can't date my daughter. Well, that's not exactly reasonable, right? I'm talking about biblical principles here. So I know that there's, uh, you know, this isn't exactly black and white all the time. Uh, maybe a, a father is uh, abusive or maybe, you know, there's all kinds of situations. But the man should understand this God-given authority. And as he pursues a young woman, it is with the blessing as much as he is able um, of the woman's parents. You don't just rip them out from under that establishment of God's uh, family. And so this is a, this is a component of, of marriage, the leaving, and then we'll close with uh, the third one and we'll leave the rest for, for next week. Um, the third component we see here is not only a leaving, but there is this cleaving, as the old King James says. Uh, my translation simply says that the, he will hold fast to his wife. Some say joined or united to his wife. There is a coming together and a joining in God's design of marriage. And again, we can look at different expressions of this union, right? Um, this is why, generally, and again, it's becoming less common, when a, when a man and, and woman are married, the woman takes the man's name. There is this coming together, on a even on practical levels. The woman takes the man's name as a symbolic way of saying, I have become one with this man. I am now identified with him and he with me. Maybe you have bank accounts that you join together, and I know that can be scary, right? But I think these are important things, that we become one, even practically. Um, get to share a bed, right? You don't have two, generally. You got one bed, come together in, in all these practical ways, even for our marriage, so one of the things we try to uh, um, work hard at is that I have no off-limit places for my wife. If she wants to scroll through all of my text messages, she is free to do that. If she wants to, well, we're one of those obnoxious couples who have a joint Facebook account, so you're never quite sure who's, your, who's talking to you, if it's the husband or the wife, it's like, is this Aaron or Christine? Because uh, we just put them together, you know, but, but um, if you have separate uh, Facebook accounts, there should be a no off-limits policy. If the woman is writing someone, the husband should be able to freely read that, and vice versa. There should not be this separation within the marriage. Um, you plan your vacations together. We could talk about all kinds of practical things where there begins to become unity. Emotionally, we talked a little bit about already, but there is an emotional coming together. 
in marriage, that no longer you confide primarily in mother and father, but as husband and wife, you begin to confide in one another. And I know um, we have to at least mention also sexually there is a coming together as one, right? But this, again, is an issue that has been so eroded. This is not the foundation of what marriage is, all right? I want you to hear that because I've come across Christians who have convinced themselves that if I have slept with this girl, then I'm married before God. No, sex is not the foundation of marriage. It is a blessing to be enjoyed in the parameters of marriage. And I know I'm sounding like I'm from the 1800s right now, but this is what God has established. And I want to tell you that it's God's good design. It's good in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful gift, right? The world doesn't get this one as though this is their idea and something they get to enjoy. No, this was for the Christian, for the God-fearer, and uh, it is mostly enjoyed and, 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 and most beautiful in the covenant of marriage. And so there's a coming together physically as well. This is why the author of Hebrews would write in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And again, I know I'm, I'm kind of addressing the young people, I guess I, I, I feel um, in many ways especially burdened for you in, in our day, but I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to Christians even who have said things like, well, when I get married, I want to make sure I'm sexually compatible with my spouse, right? We've got, we got to make sure about that before I commit, or I need to have experience before I get married because what if I, I can't please my spouse, these are lies from the pit of hell, okay? Please hear me on that. It is a lie and it is destructive because sex and sexuality can only be properly enjoyed in the covenant context of marriage. I'm not saying that it's, it's not fun outside of marriage at times, but the long-term effects are destructive and painful and against God's design. And I don't say this to brag, but rather to encourage you young people, um, by God's grace, my wife, wife and I both did wait, and I mean by God's grace, because I'm certainly no more righteous than, than anyone else. But I cannot tell you how many times I have thanked God for that. I can't tell you how many times, because it is a tremendous gift and a blessing. You don't have to come to your marriage bed with all kinds of experience. You come and you say, I've waited for you. I've saved myself for you. I don't, I don't know how this is all going to work, but you know what? It, it's not based on our performance. If, if, if our performance isn't that great, the, the relationship isn't over. I'm, I'm sticking with you regardless. That is the place in which you can enjoy physical intimacy when, uh, when it's not the foundation of your relationship. And um, even to those who are married, again, you know, uh, I often think sometimes before marriage, it, the, the, the devil does all that he can to get us into bed together, and then after we're married, he does all he can to keep us out of bed together. And I know this is getting a bit PG-13 uh, or whatever, but, um, but you know, it is a battle. And 
And we need to be aware of that, that this is God's good gift, this physical union coming together, and in our marriages, we fight to keep that a part of our marriage as God has given it. Um, it is a powerful way to fight for our marriage, right? It's pretty hard to, uh, to maintain my grudge against my wife, right? If we're going to be physically intimate together, it's not going to work. We're going to have to deal with this issue, right? It, it needs to be talked about. And there needs to be forgiveness and reconciliation, and it can sometimes force you to, to talk. And um, I want to close by saying, I realize as well that all of us, and I mean all of us, have things that we regret, right? We have all sinned, not only sexually, but we have broken God's law. And so I don't want to, if you have crossed lines you wish you didn't, if you have committed yourselves to someone in, in ways you wish you hadn't, I don't want you to feel like you have to walk out of here and hang your head in defeat and defeat and, and that there's no hope for a, 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 a happy marriage or enjoying a spouse one day because that's not true. And the reason that's not true is because Jesus Christ offers complete forgiveness and reconciliation, right? And I will, I will confess, there's, at times in my life, I have looked at things I wish I hadn't looked. I had watched things I wish I hadn't looked. Uh, watched, and I've had to confess that to, to brothers in the Lord as a single man, and, and sometimes to my wife. And so we all fall on our faces at times. And so don't feel defeat, but rather a call to rise up and fight and stand in the goodness of what God has made. Paul says in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in trespasses and then the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Uh, triumphing over them in him. If you have sinned against God, if you have compromised, flee to Christ. Run to Him. Find forgiveness. Find renewal. And seek His strength to walk in the beauty of what He has made. And uh, this is another little clip and then we'll, we'll be done. Um, from John Piper's book, the, This Momentary Marriage, he said, Jesus died for sinners. He forged a covenant in the white-hot heat of his suffering in our place. He made an imperfect bride his own with the price of his own blood and covered her with the garment of his righteousness. He said, I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Marriage is meant by God to put the, that gospel reality on display in the world. That is why we are married. This is why all people are married, even when they don't know it and embrace the gospel. Marriage is temporary. It's temporary. Jesus said in, in heaven, in Matthew twenty two thirty that we will be like the angels. We will not be given or taken in marriage. And so it is a temporary picture of the gospel for this life. And so, yes, enjoy it. But even if you are single, you can know that you're not 
You're not being shortchanged because if you are looking to Christ, you are part of the eternal marriage, the marriage between the bride and the lamb that will go on. And when this momentary picture of marriage fades, we will be joined with Christ, our bridegroom. And if you are here and you have not called upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not confessed him as Lord, then I pray that you would heed the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 55. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my steadfast, sure love for David. And let us pray and go to the Lord and ask him to help us believe these things. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know, God, that so oftentimes we can lose sight so quickly of your word, of your ways. We can lose sight of the gospel, Lord, and we become overwhelmed with struggles in our marriage, with rebellious children, with trials and sickness. Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision of what we have been given to portray in our marriages, in our homes, and as a church, Lord God, that we would delight in you, and Lord, what you call good, we would call good. And I pray especially for the young people here, Father, would you protect them, Lord, and would you help them to stand in such an evil day, Lord. I pray that you would give them great faith, Lord, as you gave Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Lord, that even if we're cast into the fire, so be it, but we will not forsake our God. I pray that would be true of us, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.